10, it's 9.15. I would say it's because of the camping trip, but it's always like this, isn't it? Yeah. All right, come on in and join us. I am teaching today, David asked me, right as we we're leaving for the camping trip. So, um, David is, I think he's up north. Actually, I don't know. He's up north, okay. He blows like the wind, like the wind now, in, in and out, no one knows, but <laughs> that's not really new. So, good morning, good to have you. We're going to be continuing uh, in the Sunday school, talking about church history, and we're going to be looking at a man um, called, named John Wycliffe. How many of you know that name? That's a good chunk. How many of you know Martin Luther's name? John Calvin. Yeah, pretty much everyone. This is a less known figure, less known name, but as important. And really, without John Wycliffe, we don't have Calvin, we don't have Luther, we don't have Huss, we don't have a lot of men. So I'm excited for this morning. Kevin, would you pray and get us going? Yeah. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can worship you. We pray that we would worship in spirit and truth. Bless Jordan's words. Bless our words. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Thank you. Um, John Wycliffe, often he's given the title of the morning star of the Reformation. Emily, what is a morning star? <laughs> Not how you're feeling right now. Okay. What's a morning star, anyone? Yeah, well, not the sun. What's the, what's the, we say the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, yes. I'm, I'm more, I'm much more base level. I'm not, this is just a simple question. What's a morning star? You'd use it in navigation. No, morning star. Dan? No? It's, yeah, I think it's typically Venus. The brightest star, at, so as the sun's coming up, the morning star is the last star visible. And so you see it, right? You, you can, it's visible right before the dawn. It's visible right before the sun comes up. It precedes the dawn, but yet it's bright. It's, it's visible. It indicates the coming of the sun. This was John Wycliffe, the morning star of the, of the Reformation. I believe it was J.C. Ryle who gave him that title. And he absolutely was the forerunner uh, the, a man who predated Luther and Calvin by over a hundred years, but his work and influence on them, they often quote Wycliffe in their writings and they were inspired by him. If, if we're going to say Luther is the father of the Reformation, Wycliffe is the, is the grandfather, is the great-grandfather. Um, this is his role. We're going to go through his life today and, and why his life and example are important for us. This was a man who was saturated in the Word of God. And this was unique um, in his day as a pastor. Last week, remember David talked about, and we'll get into some of that again, sort of the, the, where the Roman Catholic Church was during this time. Um, oh, it looks like someone locked their keys in their car. They're, anyways, I was like, what's going on out there? Uh, saturated in the Word of God, uh, he had a love for the Word, and it was central to his impact on the day he lived in and also the Protestant Reformation and really us today. Wycliffe has profound impact on us, each of us today. 
Um, and the man was a man of integrity and character. He had all the, we're going to see all the giftings in the world. He was one of the brightest men, if not the brightest men, to live in England and to live really in, in Europe in his day. And he had opportunity after opportunity to uh, receive more prestige and honor and to brush shoulders with nobility. And we'll see he, he rejects that. He's a man of integrity. Even though he has giftings and abilities, he chooses to stand on the word of God, and it, it does cost him. Um, just some context about England during this time in the 14th century. It was a time where really, during this time, and even predating it, there was never a really a great English preacher. Um, those came after, but in this time, it's sort of like the time that Amos describes uh, a famine in the land from a lack of hearing the word of God. So there was... There was a famine. There was not a lot of strong churches, strong men teaching the Word of God. The Roman Catholic Church was faltering, was at its point the most, one of the most wicked times in the history of the church. And so this is where Whit, uh, Wycliffe is born into. And so he was born uh, in 13th, around 1330. We don't know the exact uh, date. It's unclear. Uh, to an English family, and they owned a sheep uh, farm in Richmond, uh, which is in Yorkshire, so about 200 or so miles north of London. Uh, we don't know a lot about his childhood, except he was a very bright uh, student. He was most likely trained and taught by uh, the local priests in the village, and that's typically how education was handled in those days. The priest would uh, do most, most of that with the young people. So at the age of 16, he left home. And he went to the Beloyal College, which is a part of Oxford University. He left there, went there for six, at the age of 16. And while he was there, just three years into his studies there, the Black Plague spread across Europe starting in 1349. You know of the Black Plague uh, killed a lot of people. You can read estimates from anywhere from 25 million up to 200 million people over Europe. Uh, and at the peak of it, about 30 to 50% of the population of just London was killed and wiped out. And this was the same at Oxford. Uh, actually, they, the college shut down for a number of years during the Black Plague. They didn't meet for classes. Whitfield uh, had quite a break in his uh, studies there. And it was during this time, this encounter with death, that Whitfield, if I say Whitfield, sorry, I mean Wycliffe, but both uh, English preachers. Uh, Wycliffe became a Christian. The experience with death, he knew many people that died on campus, many of his friends and family. This encounter with death led him to be a Christian. And we don't have a, an exact account of the story, but we're told after this, and others note that his life greatly came alive and he was greatly changed. So he becomes a Christian. Oxford reopens. And he graduates in 1356 with a Bachelor of Arts degree, and he would go on and later receive a Doctorate of Theology in 1366 and then a Bachelor of Divinity in 69, both at Oxford. And in 1361, before he graduates, he was ordained to the priesthood, and he began to preach at a church in Fillingham, and then he would move around to various small churches. And this is where uh, he began to build a great renown for his preaching and preaching that revolved around and was centered on the Word of God. This was a notable difference from any sort of preaching that was going on in the day. 
the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, hard, they, they had the Bible, but they said they had the Vulgate. It was only in the Latin tongue. The Mass was in Latin. They would preach, but they would not use the Bible. In fact, they discouraged using the Bible in their Masses. They discouraged it. They discouraged it from being read. They discouraged it from being read in the services. They relied and they quoted church fathers, uh, church history, the doctrines of the church, and they would use these. So for a man to come now and preach in using the Word of God, it was a profound difference. And not just that he used the Word of God, but he loved it personally. And one of the other things that greatly distinguished Wycliffe from others was he preached in the vernacular tongue. He preached in English to the people. Now, does that make sense to us? The people were English. He preached in English. Was not the case, right? This is a time where the Roman Catholic Church held all the masses in Latin. And so you would go and sit there, and you would have no idea what was going on or being said. Well, you'd be familiar with the, 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 the liturgy over time, but Whitfield preached the Word of God, and he preached it in the tongue of the people. And this was profound. He was virtually the only man doing this in England and in much of Europe. So during his time as a pastor, he also became a professor at Oxford. He was one of the brightest students they ever had in, their, in, their, in the time there. He was a brilliant teacher. In fact, many of the other professors in the college would sit in on his lectures so they could learn. So he would draw a big crowd. He was respected as one of the greatest thinkers of his age. And like his preaching, um, when Whitfield, Wycliffe, sorry, taught at Oxford, Again, one of the noteworthy things that is mentioned is that he used the Word of God. He taught the Word of God. He taught from the Word of God. He instructed from there. In fact, he refused uh, to cite the teachings of the church fathers, the councils, and decisions of the popes. He almost, he corrected the other way and would just not use it at all and only spoke the Word of God. So... This is his background, his education, how he sort of began to make a name for himself, but he's really propelled into the spotlight in English politics and in the church life uh, when he begins to teach a doctrine that would come to be known and called the doctrine of dominion. So Wycliffe held this position, and it really came out of his refusal and, and hatred for what the Roman Catholic Church had become in terms of their power and their sphere on earth. And so in this doctrine, Wycliffe emphasized God's sovereignty as the highest authority over the earth. That it wasn't the church, it wasn't the civil magistrates, it was God's authority. And God's, part of God's authority was that he assigned authority over earthly property, worldly possessions, to primarily the secular government. The worldly possessions land, anything of that sort was primarily given to secular government. And at the same time, so the authority of the government over land, over, over possession, and then the church had authority, but it was over spiritual matters. It was not over civil affairs. And so one of the things that Wycliffe maintained, and actually one of the things that we should remember and why this doctrine was so significant it was the fact that at this time the Roman Catholic Church was incredibly wealthy. Um, 
it's estimated and, and it's, it's, it's pretty well established that they owned over one-third of all the property in Western Europe, the Catholic Church at this time. Anyone know how much property the Roman Catholic Church owns today? 177 million acres. It's just over six Ohios. Anyways, I looked it up. I, I was wondering. But at this time, they owned a third of Europe. They owned a third of at least Western Europe. And so they had a lot of land. Remember what David mentioned last week? They, they, the, the, the popes believed that they established the government, that they established and chose kings, that they had the right to ordain them to authority. And so Wycliffe says, no, public affairs are for the government. Spiritual affairs are only for the church. And also Wycliffe <laughs> taught that if the civil leaders and if the, the authorities, the civil authorities failed to live godly and pure lives, they actually forfeited their right to own any land, to own the church buildings, to own property, and that the government should come and take it. And so Wycliffe is, is poking at really taking a baseball bat to a beehive here. He's saying the government should take the church's stuff. This is wrong that they have it. These are wicked people. They live for money. They live for power. And this is wrong. The church is over spiritual matters. <clears throat> and so, as you can imagine, who do you think this gained popularity with? Who do you think liked this doctrine of dominion? Secular authorities. Yeah. King Edward, King Edward III loved it. <laughs> He was on board with this, right? Oh, yeah, I agree. Because the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was the thorn in his side. They taxed the people of, of England. They taxed all of Europe. But they wanted more and more taxes. They would tax the kings and the people. They took a lot of money. And so the King Edward III, he supports Wycliffe in this. He says, yeah, I agree. <laughs> they shouldn't be taking all of our money. And so he actually gains a lot of influence with, with the king of England at the time. He's made a royal chaplain, and he has opportunities and often preaches before the royal court where he continues to uh, preach the word of God and talk about the things of God. And in fact, King Edward III, I guess, was sort of a, I don't know exactly what he was, but he was a little crazy, uh, senile, something, there's not a lot about it, but... In fact, his younger brother, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, held the real power. And he's actually the one who becomes pretty good friends with Wycliffe during this time. And uh, he solicits the help of Wycliffe uh, to convince the English Parliament to stop paying taxes to the Roman Catholic Church. So Wycliffe actually goes before Parliament and he convinces them and they say, all right, we're done. And they stop paying taxes or basically almost stopped paying taxes to the Roman Catholic Church, um, again, through, through the work and the influence of Wycliffe. And so um, during this time, as you can imagine, the, popes are, the Pope, Gregory the, the 11th, is not happy with Wycliffe. In fact, he at this time is, is wanting more taxes to be taken. There's a threat of invasion from France, and so they're wanting the English people to pay for it, and Wycliffe says, no, they shouldn't. In fact, you should tax the clergy. They have all the money. And he was right. He said, tax the clergy. They have all the money. They have the pristine buildings and the properties. Tax them. So Wycliffe was hated 
by the Roman Catholic Church. They hated, they were, he was hitting them where it counted, in their pocketbooks. So Wycliffe is then, King Edward III appoints him as a royal commissioner, basically an ambassador. And he actually goes to France, and he continues the work of anti-tax of the church, saying, no, don't pay them. Do not pay them. He gets right into the middle of this. <clears throat> he negotiates with France over England's refusal to pay taxes, and he, he gains momentum there. And he's right in the middle of the Avignon captivity. Remember, David mentioned this last week. There was a splitting of the popes, right? There were seven popes in France, and then the, the popes of Rome. And so this was, a, this was a volatile time of splitting in the church. Wycliffe is in the middle, um, fueling this debate. And he, real, he really deals with a lot of terrible corruption. This is a time where he really sees sort of the, the, the leaf, the, the cover being drawn back. And he actually sees how much money and power and sway is going back and forth between the popes, between the civil authorities. And this really further cements his hatred and his despise of what the popes, what the Roman Catholic Church came and has meant to be during this day. It's all about money, it's all about greed, it's all about sharing wealth, power, and manipulation. And so it fuels his intense disdain for the papacy. And so he's, he's there, eventually he, he's done as this royal commissioner. He goes back to England and he pastors a church and he does so for about 10 years until his death um, in 1384 and only lived to the age of 56. And so... Backing up to cover more about his life, um, as you can imagine, he, angers, he angered the Roman Catholic Church, and so they call him to trial. So he is summoned to trial on May 22nd, 1377 by Rome. What do you think he does? Who thinks he went? Who thinks he didn't go? Yeah, he doesn't go. He says, no, you're not an authority. It's the word of God. At this point, he's so convinced. He's, he's hard on the stance of, look, they have abused the word of God. They don't even bring up the word of God. They are not an authority. They are not God's messengers to earth. And so he doesn't go. He ignores this. King Edward and his, the younger brother of King Edward, the, the John of Gaunt, who had most of the power, they back his support. And so actually, you sort of see this political alignment he had with King Edward and his younger brother as... Uh, a helpful way for protecting Wycliffe. Um, and so really, nothing comes of this. He refuses to go. The Roman Catholic Church typically would have a lot of power in these situations, but because he's so closely aligned with the King of England, he's able to stay, and he does stay at Oxford, and he continues uh, to teach. But he continues on the path that he started, attacking the Roman Catholic Church, um, calling out their hypocrisy, he continues to make waves in the church. Um, he's an agitator. And eventually it does get to a point where even King Edward and his brother remove themselves from him. He's creating such an upheaval among the people that they begin to back away because what he's saying begins to cost things. It begins to be costly to even be aligned with him. And so he does continue at Oxford but even that comes to an end. It gets to a point where the university has had enough because of, of all the upheaval he's causing. And in fact, 
during one of his lectures, they send campus police, whatever, and they pull him out in the middle of one of his lectures to students. They, they decide, we're done with them, and they move on with them. And again, furthering the tensions, the, his attacks on the Roman Catholic Church, his teaching at Oxford, his, his desire to stand for the word of God in the pulpit, um, it was also fueled by the, the Peasants' Revolt in England in 1381. And the, many, the church and the civil authorities blamed the revolt on Wycliffe, on his writings, on his, his style, in their words, of being an agitator, right? Of attacking the nobility, of attacking the wealthy, and, of, and, and, and his attack on the Catholic Church and not paying taxes. And so they blame him. And so it really begins to turn on Wycliffe here the powers to be of this world begin to turn on him. The king backs away. Oxford University pulls their support. He's not allowed to be there anymore. And what was once a, a sort of a badge of honor to be a, a Wycliffeite, it was a, a, a badge of, of nobility, of, of wealth, prestige. It becomes quickly a badge that was something that no one wanted. Everyone began to back away from him. And this is one of the Again, you read the life of Wycliffe and just walking through his early years in ministry and, and at Oxford, he was really a bright man. And he had every end that he wanted with the powers of England. He was friends. He was in the royal court. And throughout that time, he maintains his commitment and his love for the word of God. And eventually, it costs him. He loses almost any avenue or sphere of authority that he had. This is important that we note this and remember. God may give it. God did give it to Wycliffe, but it wasn't what he lived for. It wasn't what he wanted. And so when he was in it, he had influence, and God used him. But he didn't waver in his commitment to the Word of God, and God takes him out of it by way of becoming public enemy number one, the Roman Catholic Church, and now really of England. They're not too happy with him. But really, it was, it was in this rejection of Oxford University, of the Roman Catholic Church, that Wycliffe really shines bright. This removal from Oxford is really a time of great power and, and, and impact in Wycliffe's life that carries on today. So he loses favor. The elite, the nobility, want nothing to do with him. But he gains favor with the faithful, with those who want to stand on the word of God with him. He gains favor with a lot. And at this time, a, a movement is launched called the Lollard Movement. Have you heard of this? The Lollard Movement. Uh, Andrew, you're Dutch. What's Lollard mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's Lollard in Spanish? Yeah. Anyone know what Lollard means? It's a Dutch word. It was the Lollard movement. Do you know why they were called the Lollards? It was a, it was, it was a derogatory term. It, Lollard was a, 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 the name, or it was the word for mumble or stutter in Dutch. You know, kind of like that. They couldn't talk right. And so it was, a, it was not an endearing term. It was actually the term coined by the enemies of this movement. They said, oh, they're the Lollards, the Lollard preachers the mumbling blah, 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 preachers. So it was, it was quite the insult. But what do they do with it? Well, they embrace it. Oh, yeah, we're the Lollards. It's kind of cool, isn't it? 
They're mocked, and they take the mocking term that they're given and say, yeah, that's our badge of honor. It shows you what Wycliffe and what the men around him, the, the pastors who are a part of this movement, what they were about. They were about the Word of God. They weren't about their eloquence or their prestige. They were happy to be called the lollards, the, the mumbling preachers, right? They're mumbling on. Uh, and actually, the, that word mumbling, if you go back further, it comes from actually during the Black Plague when they would go around picking up dead bodies. You know, you think of the Monty Python, bring out your dead, you know? That's where that word, it was, it was it, it, you know, it was not a welcomed saying. It was not a welcomed word. It was, it was something they embraced, though, and they loved. And so Wycliffe would train up these men to be pastors and preachers, and he'd send them out. And this was the Lollard movement. They would go around preaching. And again, this was transformative in, the English, in, in England. There were no men doing this. There were no men preaching uh, in English. There were no men preaching the Word of God, and yet these men are now going out. They're called the evangelical men because they preached the gospel. It was revolutionary. They were called poor preachers, right? They, they didn't have anything. Wycliffe was committed to the belief that the primary benefit of ministry was not in administering the sacraments, but it was in preaching the written word of God. The Roman Catholic Church at this time, it's called the, it was called the Mass. It's the Mass, right? It's centered around the sacraments. Central. The sacraments are central to their worship. It was central to the worship in Wycliffe's day. Wycliffe said, no, it's important, but it's the preaching of the Word of God. That is important. And that is the central part of gathering together as the people of God, the preaching the written Word of God. That's what has power. That is what changes you. Not the forms, not the ceremonies, the Word of God. And so he sends these lollards out, the mumbling preachers, to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim the gospel. In a day when the Pope claimed to speak himself on behalf of God, God Wycliffe said, no, it's the divine inspiration of the Bible. It's the Bible. It's not the Pope. It's a critical hour, this hour when the church considers itself to be the highest authority, Wycliffe sends these men out. They preach. They attest to the supreme right of the Bible to rule in all lives. Not the church. The Bible rules in your life. He elevated Scripture above the church. He elevated them above the church, above church leaders, and even over the Pope himself. And he states, it alone is the supreme law that is to rule church state and the Christian life without traditions and statutes. It's the word of God and nothing else. <laughs> Again, hitting the bee's nest with the baseball bat. I don't want to put you on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, Randy, 
Good question. He's asking just how the impacts this had on, um, you know, England's, it, the church state is Anglican. It, it, it goes Protestant, the Anglican branch sort of splits, but is with Roman Catholicism. I, the most I can say about that is the Anglican church, Wycliffe is their hero. You know, they have this, I think it's December 31st is their saint's holiday to Wycliffe. Um, but certainly Wycliffe, again, with the overall Protestant Reformation, was the spark plug that ignited what would come next. You know, the, the solas that came out of the Reformation, sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. You go read Calvin, you read Luther on it. This is stemming from Wycliffe. I mean, the things that Wycliffe fought for and stood on and how he lived really led to that doctrine being so embraced over 100 years later. And so I don't know if that answers what you were asking. Um, I don't know much beyond that, but certainly his role here played a huge part in, in England not becoming a Roman Catholic uh, country, but really became Anglican Protestant, but really his impact goes beyond, beyond England itself. So... Yes. Absolutely. Randy's saying it, they weren't priests. They were, they were going out as, as preachers. As, they were evangelizing. They were spreading the gospel. They were going from church to church. You know, things that we see uh, Whitfield and, and the Wesleys do hundreds of years later. These men are doing it here. They're, they're the first to do it, and it really has never happened in recent history up until this point, and it's revolutionary, and it's with power. Um, and so, and, and I should say it's revolutionary, not because um, it's new or it's, it's different than what the Apostle Paul did or the, the disciples. It's doing precisely what they did, going around proclaiming the gospel. It's revolutionary because it hadn't happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. <clears throat> And they preached the simple word of God. You know, this was a time where everything, every, any sermon was allegorical, right? It was, oh, well, this really means that, and, and this represents this, and that represents that. Wycliffe was committed to saying, the Bible means what the Bible says. Just read it, take it for what it is, and that's what it means. That's the power. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to go to Oxford. You don't have to be a whiz. You don't have to be a priest. Catholic Church said you have to be a priest. That's why we won't give you the Bible. You have to be a priest to know this. We'll tell you what it means, but you can't be trusted with it because you're a peasant. You're poor. Now, this leads into probably one of the most profound impacts of Wycliffe and probably why most of you have heard of him at least his last name, part of his commitment and love for the Word of God during this time, Wycliffe, Wycliffe realizes, whoa, nobody has a Bible. Who has all the Bibles? The Roman Catholic Church. They have every Bible. And who can read the Bible? What language is the Bible in? Latin. It's only in Latin. Written by Jerome a thousand years earlier. I mean, that was the last release you know, we're used to LifeWay putting one out every six months. 
It'd been a thousand years since the last edition. And it was in Latin, so no one could read it. And so Wycliffe says, whoa, of course England's dead. No one's reading the Bible. We look to the church as the authority, but they're, they're the most wicked institution on earth. We need the Bible in the hands of the people if we're going to see change. And so Wycliffe undertakes this enormous task of translating the Bible, the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, into English. Now, remember, the Gutenberg Press wasn't invented until 1440. And so not only do you have the massive task of translating this Bible, which Wycliffe did a lot, and actually he used people at Oxford too. Not only did he have to do the initial translation, but any translation after that, any manuscript had to be handwritten with, a, with ink and a quill. And copying the Bible, a full transcript, into English, it took 10 months of a scribe working full-time on it. 10 months. So this is what had to happen. And they made hundreds and hundreds of Bibles and distributed them. They made hundreds of copies. It has profound impact on England and on us today. Hundreds of copies go out. And so this is Wycliffe's work. He suffers a stroke in 1382. On November, 13, November sorry, 17th, 1382, later that year, he's summoned before a synod at Oxford where he is excommunicated and again commanded by the church to go to Rome to give an account for his erroneous doctrine, his refusal to acknowledge the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, his refusal to stop attacking their money. What do you think he does? He doesn't go. <laughs> He's not acknowledging the authority of the Pope. He refuses. He suffers a second stroke on December 28th, two years later, and he's in the last weeks of his life. He's not doing well. And in the last few weeks of his life, he's visited by his friends and family giving their well wishes, and he dies a peaceful death. Now, he's visited by the Roman, his Roman Catholic opponents, the civil officials, and others who hope to hear him or can't. The goal in, their, in the last days of Wycliffe's life for his enemies is to get him to recant because the Lollard movement is a movement with power and the word of God is going forth and it's hurting the church. People are stopped paying their taxes to the church. It's hitting him in the pocketbooks and they just want him to recant so this thing will end. And they're realizing it's not going to end when he dies. The impact of Wycliffe is going on. Wycliffe says... This is a quote from him. I shall not die, but live. So as they're coming to him, he says, I shall not die, but live, and shall again declare the evil deeds of the friars. <laughs> He's a stubborn guy. He's weeks away from death. I'm not dying. You're dying. <laughs> but I will declare the evil deeds of the friars. That's his life's work. I mean, it's cool. What a man. Shortly thereafter, though, he does die, New Year's Eve in 1384. 
and many <clears throat> years after, he's, he's put on trial. He's dead. He's put on trial again. He can't refuse to go this time. He's, you know, so they put him on trial, and they label him a heretic. Right? The movement is still going with power, and so they say, let's do it. The Catholic Church says, let's do what we can. We're going to label him a heretic. They dig up his bones, they burn him, and they throw him into the river. And yet it continues. Wycliffe is truly the morning star of the Reformation. He's the inspiration behind the men and the women that follow. His commitment to the Word of God bears out Scripture alone. Right? Something to us, you know, what's our church's name? Christ the Word. You know, it's, this is so central to the identity of our church, and every church, but it's why we began. We said, no, it has to be the Word of God. Right? And we've had that for over 20 years here, and, and probably the young of you here, this is something you could take for granted, uh, being in a church body that really is committed to the Word of God and preaches it, and seeks to love it and obey it, this is not an automatic. You know, in Wycliffe's day, no one was doing this. He was the only one. And so we're hundreds and hundreds of years later, we really benefit from this man. We really benefit from his commitment to the Word of God. You think about the lasting impact that had on his generation, but on the ones that followed, on, on England itself, you know, the lasting impact it, it has on America, right? Being founded as a nation that had co strong commitments to the Word of God, right? Even to the Western world, we can say what we want and there are evils, but wherever you do see the Bible freely and openly administered and in the tongue of the people and available, you see societies that are built upon the Word of God and it's better, it's good, it's good when a society honors the Word of God, right? It's good when the laws of society are derived from the laws of Scripture. And that's true of our country. That's true of much of the Western world. And it's a blessing to society. <clears throat> and so, you know, Wycliffe's life, what it means for us today, well, we should be grateful for this man, his work and commitment to the Word of God. It was truly incredible in his day and it has lasting impacts to this very day. And we were so blessed by him and the many men and women who followed him, who gave their lives to fighting for the supremacy of the word of God. We should be grateful. We should also learn from him, and this is an important thing to note, you know, Wycliffe, like we said, he had influence. He had every opportunity to, be, to brush shoulders with the nobility. He was a bright man. He was the brightest lecturer and student at Oxford. He was the greatest preacher in the royal court. He had all these things. He had the eye of the king. They loved him for a time. And he could have used that influence, but he doesn't. And this is an important point to remember. God does not need us to have our influence. God does not need us to have... Uh, a, a winsome ability to win the world. God needs us to be committed to his word and preach it. And that has far more impact than wealth or prestige or knowledge. God calls us to be committed to the word of God. You know, we, David, it will, it'll be a theme in this class 
but he made a great point talking about, you know, as we look at the Roman Catholic Church and you see the atrocities and the wickedness of it, it really is the Protestant Church. I mean, look around. The leaders of the Protestant Church, wealth, prestige, PhDs, it's what all these men and women live for. It's, it's the currency of the evangelical church. And so really our day is not that different from Wycliffe's. You have a man or woman that will stand on the word of God and will not flinch. You're going to make a splash. You're going to be a, a lightning rod just like Wycliffe was. I mean, he was the only guy doing it. And so we need to be committed to the word of God. We must be resolved in our minds to live by the power of the word of God, to take it for what it is and to obey it. That was the power and the life of Wycliffe. That was, that was all he did and remained committed to. His life changed. He went from being in the ends with certain people and then he went to being on the outs. And as deathbed, no one was with him except the poor preachers, the lollards, the mumbling preachers, the scum of the earth. And yet, his life had far more power than anyone else's in this day. And so, I hope we want to be like Wycliffe. I hope we want and strive to be like him, this great man. And I hope that we do so by our commitment to the Word of God. And I want to leave you with that challenge today. Commit yourself to believing and honoring, trusting and obeying the Word of God as Wycliffe did. This is where a true life of power stems from. This is a true life, a Christian life that does great things for God. It obeys the word of God. It believes and it teaches it as it is. And so we're so grateful to Wycliffe and his influence. I hope this was helpful to you. Let's go ahead and pray.